Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here. Welcome back to Scripture Uncovered. Hey, for the last few podcasts, we've drawn topics from the Easter season, from Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and now the run-up to Pentecost, which will be on Sunday, May 20th. Now recall that as we move through Holy Week and Good Friday, Jesus' impending death and crucifixion loomed really large, casting a deep, dark shadow, only to explode into a burst of light on Easter morning. For Roman Catholics, the Easter Vigil on Saturday night, that is, between Good Friday and Easter morning, is the most profound liturgy of the year. I remember my first Easter Vigil when I was a graduate student at Arizona State University working on my master's degree in literature. I went to the Franciscan Renewal Center in Scottsdale, Arizona. Now back in the 70s, that was way north of Scottsdale out in the desert. Today, it's been swallowed up by very expensive residential communities in Cave Creek and carefree Arizona. But back then, though, it was an isolated gem. It was 1975, and I was living in a little studio apartment with a futon, a hot plate, and brick and board bookcases lining the walls. The whole apartment was about the size of my kitchen today. Anyhow, I was being chased down by the hound of heaven and I was drawn to the Franciscan Center, the Casa, as we called it then and now. The Easter Vigil began after sunset, about a quarter mile out in the desert. Now back then, you could look up and see countless stars twinkling in the sky. Several hundred people were gathered in the dark around a huge pile of wood. We had each been given an unlit candle and when the liturgy began, the priest lit the bonfire and it quickly blazed up, sending thousands of sparks high into the sky. And I remember looking up and it, it looked like the sparks had, had joined with the stars above. And then the priest lit a single large candle from the bonfire. And we passed that flame around from one to another until all of our candles were lit. And we very quietly processed about a quarter mile to the chapel, which was in total darkness. Now, once we were all inside, the chapel glowed in the candlelight and the mass began. When we reached the gospel reading, the story of Jesus' resurrection, all the lights in the chapel flicked on and we saw the altar bedecked in white Easter lilies, and music filled the chapel. Why, there was not a dry eye in the house. That year, I became a Roman Catholic, and I guess I've never looked back. I know there are a lot of things wrong with the church, but we're a family. It's my family. I've bellied up to the bar, and I like it here. Now, I bring all this up because this past week I went home to Pittsburgh, where I was born and where I grew up. 
I left home right after high school when I joined the Marine Corps in 1966. That was the Vietnam era. Now I go back to visit Pittsburgh periodically, but I made this visit to attend a funeral. My sister-in-law's father had died. Now he led a long and good life, dying in his late 80s. But his death, attending the viewing at the funeral home, the funeral service, the trip to the cemetery, it really got me thinking about death. As each of us was born, so each of us will die. There are no exceptions. We're all going to walk through that door. Now, most people think of death as a natural part of life. Every living thing is born, lives, and dies. The great cycle of life, as the movie and Broadway musical The Lion King sings about. But death was not in God's plan for us. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. As I've mentioned many times before, Genesis 1 and 2 are mythopoeic literature. That is, they address the fundamental issues of the human condition in the form of story. Every time and every culture has a creation story. In our creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and he walks with them in the Garden of Eden, a perfect place. Adam and Eve are in love with one another and with God, and they share an intimate, personal relationship. And you have to ask, how long would Adam and Eve have lived had not sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3? Well, the answer is forever. God created Adam and Eve to be immortal, to live in an intimate, loving relationship with one another and with Him. Death enters the world only after sin. And it's a good thing, too. We define sin, when I teach Genesis chapter 3, not as an act that one commits, but as a condition one is in. Sin is a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful actions. In other words, if I were in a right relationship with God, the action is symptomatic of the condition. And living forever in a condition of alienation and separation from God is the very definition of hell. So God mercifully limits our days. Now think back to Genesis chapter 5. After sin enters the world and after sin makes its progression in the world, we have a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and we learn that Adam lived to be 930 years old. His son Seth lived to be 912. Canaan lived to be 910. Mahaliel, 895. And all the way down through the line, Methuselah, my goodness, he was the oldest of all. He lived to be 969 years. What's with all the old ages in the Bible? You know, if you continue reading on through the Bible, through Scripture from Genesis chapter 5, 
we find that Adam and Eve would have lived eternally. But after sin, God limits our time. And as we move through Scripture, the length of life creates a downward sloping curve. If we were to plot on a graph with the vertical line being ages 0 to 1,000 and the horizontal line, Genesis 1, all the way through Psalm 90, we'd find every time an age is mentioned, we plot it on the graph and you get a downward sloping curve. In Psalm 90, which is attributed to Moses, he writes, the span of a man's life is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong, which is about what it is today. So with death, we begin a process of entropy in Scripture, a process of winding down. We'll all step out into that void. We all die. That's a fact. In Scripture, we see the prophet Elijah raise a dead child, and we see the prophet Elisha raise a dead child. In the Gospels, we see Jesus raise the dead on three occasions. Jairus's 12-year-old daughter who had just died, the widow of Nain's adult son who had died and was about to be buried, and Jesus' friend Lazarus, who's been rotting in a tomb for four days. Let's pause and take a look at that story. It's in John chapter 11. Jesus and his disciples have been down opposite Jericho, east of Jericho on the other side of the Jordan River. And they learn of Lazarus being sick. So Jesus and the others head back up to Jerusalem. And we read in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, Martha being Lazarus' brother, she went out to meet him. But Mary, her sister, stayed at home. Well, Martha was not at all happy with Jesus. She sent a message to him that Lazarus was sick, and now he's died. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, well, I know he'll rise at the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Well, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. She said, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, the village of Bethany. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly he got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Mary knew that Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son. He could have saved Lazarus. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply, profoundly moved and deeply troubled in spirit. Deeply, deeply troubled. The, the Greek word suggests a, a, a struggle, an internal struggle. He was deeply troubled. He was angered. And Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He was going to raise Lazarus. He knew that. But seeing what death had done, what it had done to Martha, what it had done to Mary, the grief, the weeping, the tears, what it had done to his friends who had gathered, Jesus was deeply angered. Not at Martha, not at Mary, not at the friends, but at death. This was not what God intended. Jesus looked at the weeping crowd and he looked at the tomb of Lazarus and he was angry with death. He was angry with sin. He was angry with the whole damn thing. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus did. Jesus raised him. Think about that. Every morning I spend an hour in the Adoration Chapel at our little village church in La Jolla before going to Mass, and I pray the Liturgy of the Hours. On Friday, the second reading of the Office of Readings was from a sermon by St. Ephraim, the deacon. And I was really taken by this reading. And let me read you a sentence from it. St. Ephraim said, Death could not devour our Lord until he possessed a body. Neither could hell swallow him up unless he bore our flesh. And so he came in search of a chariot in which to ride to the underworld. This chariot was the body which he received from the Virgin. In it, he invaded death's fortress, broke open its strong room, and scattered all its treasure. On that cross, Jesus defeated sin and death. And he promises us that when we die, when we step out into eternity, we step out through that door of death, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will arrive at a new place. We've heard this said in church. We've heard it said in mass. We've heard it said in sermons. But what would it be like? Imagine, if you will, being in your mother's womb. It's only you, unless you were there with a twin. It's only you. It's dark, completely dark. You don't know up from down. You're afloat. You're in a perfect temperature, exactly the temperature that you are. All your nutrition is provided Everything you need is provided for you. And at some point during your gestation, you achieve self-awareness. You become aware of self. Notice how a baby in the womb 
will, will stretch. You'll see an elbow poke out or a, a, a knee or a foot. You stretch because, well, it feels good. There's self-awareness. And you think to yourself, life is pretty darn good. I like it here. But then imagine if a voice said to you, you need to get ready for this because tomorrow you're going to be born. And you say, born? What's that? Well, you'll be leaving here where you are. I don't want to leave here. Sorry, you have to. No, I don't. Why? What's wrong with being here? What's wrong? Well, for one thing, you're upside down. But you're going to be leaving tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, and all of a sudden, you're pushed and you're shoved and you're pulled at, and, and it's a horrible experience. And it's painful. And then you come out of your mother's womb and the lights are bright and there are noises and people and colors and you're overwhelmed by it all and you cry. Ah! I want to go back. But here you are. I remember only a few years back on a perfect afternoon we were diving at La Jolla Shores and it was about 80 degrees, bright sunshiny day, bright blue sky. And we kicked out from the beach, oh, maybe 200 yards, looking up at the sky. And I remember so clearly seeing a red biplane flying overhead. And I looked around at the friends I was with, at the biplane, at the sky, the sound of the water. And I thought, you know, if I died now, it'd be perfectly okay. Life doesn't get any better. Well, in the womb, I could never have imagined color. I could never have imagined a red biplane against the blue sky. I could never have imagined friends. I could never have imagined the adventures that we had underwater. And I think dying will be much like that. It's difficult to imagine what it will be like. But it can't be that hard. You know, you go to the cemetery, as I did this past Monday, and everyone there is 100% dead, and they all got it right on the first try. can't be that hard. But I imagine when we step out, we step through that door of death, it will be just like being born. The magnitude of the change will be just like that. So it's not something to be dreaded. It's something to embrace and to trust, to trust in the Lord. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you can be sure if he's preparing it, it'll be a darn nice place. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. So welcome back to our question and answer segment of Scripture Uncovered. I have a question here from Patricia Kay, who writes, The Bible says the Holy Family fled to Egypt after Joseph was warned in a dream. Herod then has 
all male children under two killed. And I've heard they were in Egypt for seven years. But Jesus is presented at the temple as an infant when we hear of Simeon and Anna. So my question is, how long were they in Egypt and did they present Jesus before going? Well, good question, Patricia. Good observation. When a child is born, we learn in Genesis chapter 17, when God seals the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, he tells Abraham that you are to circumcise all your male children on the eighth day after they're born. So when Jesus was born, he certainly would have been circumcised on the eighth day. Mary and Joseph were a good Jewish family. They had just given birth to their firstborn son, and he would be circumcised on day eight. We also learn over in Leviticus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is during her monthly period, and on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised, echoing back to Abraham. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. And when they're over, she is to bring the child to the priest at the tabernacle in Leviticus, later at the temple in Jerusalem, and present the child on the 40th day, that is, for a son. With a daughter, it's 80 days. So on the eighth day, a boy is circumcised. On the 40th day, he's presented. We also learn over in Matthew that when Jesus was born, the Magi arrived. Magi, wise men, from the east. They would have been from what we think of today is Iran or Iraq, Persia back in earlier days. So the Magi arrived. They've seen the star and they've followed it to Bethlehem. Now it would take them a while to get there because if you travel from, let's say, Iran all the way to Israel and you're traveling by caravan on the Silk Route, it will take you several weeks. So they arrive after the child is born. And that's when they meet Herod. And Herod said, oh, let me, let me know about, about this child. Uh, another king being born out, I have to worship him too. Well, of course, that's not what he had planned. The Magi visit and they see the child, not like in a, a manger or nativity set, where we have Mary and Joseph and a little baby Jesus and three shepherds and three magi and some animals. They're not all there at the same time. They're not all there. The magi come later. It takes them a while to get there. So Jesus has been circumcised. He's been presented at the temple 40 days after his birth. And then the magi arrive. Joseph learns in a dream 
that Herod is going to kill all the children under two years old. So that means sometime between one and two years has passed since Jesus was born. Why would Herod then not kill all the children under three months old? But no, it's under two, because he may have been born during that time. So the Magi leave, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus head to Egypt, and they stay there until Herod dies. Now Herod dies, Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. Now I know that's problematic, how could he die in 4 BC, four years before Christ is born? Well, we have a difficulty with the calendar. Uh, a lunar calendar versus a solar calendar and changes in the calendar over the years. But Herod dies shortly after Jesus is born, after the flight to Egypt. Let's say two to four years afterward. Once they learn in Egypt that Herod has died, then they come back. So that seems to be the sequence. Jesus is born, eight days later circumcised, 40 days later presented at the temple in Jerusalem. The Magi arrive, Herod hears about it, the Magi leave, and Mary and Joseph leave for Egypt. They stay there for two to four years, then they come back. All right, let me turn quickly now to question number two from Tim S. And Tim asks, what does the Catholic Bible say about the rapture? Now, well, good question, Tim. I think we have to pause for a moment and ask why the Catholic Bible versus any other Bible. There are additional books in the Catholic Bible in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that are not in Protestant or Jewish books. But the 27 books in the New Testament are identical, identical in every Christian Bible. So what does the Bible say about the rapture? Well, the idea of the rapture, the word rapture, really occurs in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica sometime during the second missionary journey. He had visited there, and he's now in Corinth. That'll be A.D. 50 to 52. It's A.D. late 51, early 52. And the people in Thessalonica have a question. Paul had told them, and Paul said this virtually every place he went, because everyone in the first generation of the church absolutely believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. The church in Thessalonica is a persecuted church, and they want to know, well, when the Lord returns, what will happen? What are the mechanics of this? Uh, what happens to my loved ones who have died in the meantime and what happens to me if I happen to be walking around when he returns? And Paul addresses that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that is, those who die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died in him. According to the Lord's own word, says Paul, we tell you that we who happen to be alive at that time, who are left and walking around on the ground, will certainly not precede those 
who have already died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, those of your loved ones who have died in Christ, they will be resurrected and they will come with him. After that, at verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up in Greek is harpazo. When St. Jerome translated the Greek scriptures into Latin, he translated harpazo, which is to be snatched up. He translated that word rapio, rapio in Latin, from which we get the word rapture. So it's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. It's a matter of translating the Greek into Latin and from the Latin, the word rapio or rapture. Well, thank you for listening in this week and I look forward to talking with you again next week. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. We hope you've enjoyed the show this week, and don't forget, go to ScriptureUncovered.com to submit your questions, and Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. That's ScriptureUncovered.com. Submit your questions, and also leave us a rating and review in iTunes or wherever else you're accessing the podcast. That's the best way to help us spread the word about Scripture Uncovered. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.